This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, our guest today is Trent Kaufman, CEO of management consulting firm Cicero Group. Uh, we are speaking with him about the application of data-driven strategy to the fields of education and social impact, and also a few other topics. Uh, joining me for this interview is Rohan Valrani, a senior at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Trent, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. You bet. I'm happy to be here. I'll, I'll, I'll just... Uh... I'll just restate our name so people know how to pronounce it. It's the Cicero Group. Oh, thank you for correcting my <laughs> mispronunciation. So, uh, Trent, how can one apply data-driven strategy to the education and social impact industries? Uh, could you perhaps just start us out with an overview of that? You, you bet. This is the passion of my professional life, um, and so I'm thrilled to be able to talk to it. You know, at its broadest level, um, social impact and education organizations are no different than um, other types, government and for-profit and other types of entities. They are striving to deliver impact to a set of end users or customers or clients. Um, and as an organization, it could can always work to improve its ability to deliver that impact. Um, how an organization goes about improving its impact uh, is varies uh, varies quite a bit. And within the social sector, education and uh, and uh, the not for profit and government a entities and um, you know non government organizations and foundations and philanthropies and so forth. The use of data to, uh, as, as an impetus for, as a measurement for, as a catalyst for improvement is, is on the rise, whereas in the private sector, um, it's, been, it's been part of the culture for a very long time. And so what we, what we see over the last several decades is you know, more and more use of data. Um, and the strategy around using data to improve social organizations is complex because there aren't always bottom line metrics that are easy to find, easy to collect, and clearly agreed upon by all stakeholders. So, um, so that's why, that's perhaps why the social sector is a, a few years behind the private sector. Um, but it's why it's such an exciting field. It's why you know I'm passionate about it. It's why Cicero is, you know, on the cutting edge of it uh, because it is complex. And you know, it starts with defining strategy and and uh, and key metrics and agreeing upon those across a variety of stakeholders that are sometimes, you know, hard hard to coalesce and hard to bring together. Um, and it it ends with an organization uh, running smoothly with consistent uh, and productive windows into their impact and into their leading and lagging indicators and, and continuous improvement. So, um, so that's a little bit of an overview of the, of the field. So uh, I think, uh, Trent, it might help if, uh, to explain this, if you could offer an example of uh, how data-driven strategy uh, has been used uh, in the social impact or education field. 
Uh, could you offer an example or so? Yeah, you bet. Why don't we why don't we tackle K twelve education for a moment? Um, there, um, you know, here we have multiple stakeholder groups. We have uh, kids. We have parents. We have the governments who are, you know, funding uh, education, which can be, you know, range from local uh, municipality to county to state to the federal government. Um, and we have the employers who will eventually employ these students. And uh, let's add on top of that um, universities who accept these students and are trying to continue their education. If you took every one of those stakeholder groups, they would each describe a different outcome, a different desired outcome um, that, that would be ideal for, uh, for our K-12 education system. And you could say even down to a specific school, very, very different. And so for, you know, the first 100 years or so of public education in the United States from the days of Horace Mann, you know, all the way through the 1970s, uh, no one really tried to fix that problem. And we let, we allowed the varied stakeholders and varied interests to create a system in which we had very little data. You know, we knew um, because we couldn't clarify the outcome. So we would know things like attendance, we would know things like um, uh, graduation rates, um, but we, we couldn't even track students from high school into college. There was no single indicator system that we would be able to know which high schools were producing the most college-ready students or which types of programs in K-12 led to you know, higher college or, or career success. So, you know, for over a hundred years, the U.S. public education system was humming along, receiving lots of funding and allocating a lot of funding, and there was really no agreed upon outcomes or, and definitely no agreed upon measurements to know whether or not the money was being used wisely um, and, and which, uh, you know, which money was being used the most wisely and in what ways. So since then, um, uh, U.S. public education uh, through a series of federal uh, mandates as well as, um, you know, some, some funding with strings attached has gotten more clarity on what it is that we should measure as the ultimate outcome of a K-12 education, and we call that uh, mastery or proficiency of certain subject areas. And since about, since the late 90s, we've been measuring this pretty consistently and now can really, and, and we're able to track students through different levels of the system, and we're able to draw some conclusions about which things are and aren't working and which students are and aren't succeeding and why. Um, and that single measure has done more to shed light on the issues in education than really anything in the history of education. And so there's this, there's a huge new industry around uh, data in education and data-driven strategy in education, all because we were able to identify a bottom line and, you know, begin to measure it. Um, so hopefully that, that example helps. That does help. Thank you. Uh, you've spoken about things from the management consultant's perspective, but what about from the perspective of schools and social impact organizations themselves? What are the top priorities in the industry for schools and social impact organizations? 
Yeah, let's let's talk social impact for a moment. In fact, let's talk like um, foundations and not for profits. What they're seeing from their perspective is really interesting. They're seeing money more dependent on on indicators and and measures of success. So funders are becoming more savvy and wanting to see more outcomes. So a good analogy I like to use is, you know, back in the 90s and maybe even the first part of this century, and I, I think you see some of it still today, in almost every opportunity you had to donate money, whether it was dropping a few coins at the uh, checkout stand of the grocery store or, or through a formal donation at your local church, one of the things the organization would often report to you on, the data they would give you is they would, they would tell you what percentage of your dollar was going to go to the starving child in Ethiopia or the uneducated female you know, teenager in, in Kenya. Um, and that metric was supposed to tell you how lean and how little overhead the organization had. And people determined their, you know, their willingness to pay based on leanness of overhead. And, you know, from our perspective, that's a very perverse incentive. That basically tells organizations that they should do, have very little structure, very little infrastructure, very little leadership, um, very, do very little planning and just get as much money to the end user as possible, it really ignores impact entirely. So whether that money going to that child, that starving child, actually provides long-term nutrition or creates uh, you know, the right environment for that child to, to, to be nourished and to succeed long-term, that was ignored entirely. And so you see social organizations becoming more savvy um, themselves at, me- at determining what is the impact we're seeking, how do we measure it, and that's uh, part of the trend. But you also see funders, as I said, making their donations a little more dependent on on outcomes versus you know inputs or other measures that maybe these organizations previously used. Now there are uh, you know uh, uh, I, I guess several consulting firms that are trying to ad- address some of the uh, issues that you mentioned in education and social impact. Uh, What what do you see as some of the main challenges that, you know, consulting firms face in in dealing with this sector relative to, say, other areas that they they might provide, you know, their insights on? Yeah, well, it's a a fast-growing business, and it's our fastest-growing business line. So, um, so it's it is attracting quite a bit of investment. It's attracting quite a bit of of effort from consulting firms for sure. You know, the the challenge um, the challenge that I've seen is the right balance of, you know, the the typical consulting skill set and the deep industry knowledge. And you know, in some respects, every industry has faced this as every industry warms itself up to consulting. I can think of healthcare as one that, you know, held that the healthcare consulting industry grew uh, to one of the the highest grossing um, industries uh, for consulting firms, um, you know, over the last 30 years. So we've watched how one industry gets used to consulting and then embraces it and then really figures out how to leverage it. So in some instance, you know, some way to think about this is probably no different for any industry, but what we see specifically in social impact is are um, the foundations, the funders, the non-governmental organizations, they're really demanding 
content experts. They're demanding folks who've been there. They're demanding folks who've seen outcomes, you know, who have been, uh, who have worked in the developing uh, world and who have achieved success as practitioners in the field. Um, but what needs to happen to uh, deliver effective consulting is some of the very traditional uh, consulting methods that consulting firms have always used. You need a very clear set of, um, you know, strategic tools that firms are good at to be able to deliver value to these these foundations. And when the consulting team is trained on, you know, shareholder value and bottom line um, as the driving force, the consulting team can sometimes struggle wrapping their head around a much more complex set of stakeholders and, you know, bottom line data, as I suggested earlier. So there's the, the biggest challenge I see around consulting this sector is how do we balance, um, you know, the skill sets required to help the sector with the industry expertise that's required to help the sector. And, and, and you know, that's something that consulting firms have succeeded in doing in other industries. And I think, I think we'll, we're on the right track in the social sector as well. How does Cicero Group specifically navigate this expertise challenge that you spoke about posed by the uh, social impact industry? Yeah, great, uh, great question. I mean, we, we do it really well, but have still have a lot of room for growth. Um, you know, I think, I think something that, uh, you know, we've been learning and other consulting firms have learned, and it's not, it doesn't come natural to consulting firms. You know, consulting firms are the, they're the home of the cross-trained analyst, right? That you can pick up any analyst from your pool of, of available analysts in a firm and assign them to any project. And in essence, that was the business model of, you know, Mr. Bain and, and the Boston Consulting Group, some of the, you know, the early, you know, pioneers in this industry. It's, we can train people to go attack any problem for any industry. And, and the business was dependent on that because as soon as you start specializing, then you can't, you know, it's much harder to manage the inbound flow of consulting work. So you get a bunch of projects, uh, you know, one month in, in one sector and then fewer in that sector and more in another sector the next month. That's hard for a management consulting firm to manage unless their resources are totally cross-trained. So, um, so you know, it, it, it is a real challenge, and what, what we're trying to do is uh, keep a bench of cross-trained consultants at the analyst level. So that's typically right out of college, um, you know, for the next three or four years prior to a graduate degree. And we, we basically don't allow those that um, role in our organization, we don't allow them to specialize. We, we, we know that what they want is cross-training. That's why they come here. And, uh, and, and, you know, it sets them up for success in anything they want to do in the future. And we keep them cross-trained. It used to be that we, uh, we also required the same of the next level, which, was the, which are the associates. They're typically postgraduate degree, pre, um, pre-management level. And we used to also keep them free from specialization, but we have moved now. All of our associates have a practice area with, within which they focus. And so they start to develop that specialization a little sooner in their career than, uh, than we used to. And, you know, it used to be that we would allow managers or encourage managers to specialize and, and above. So partners and principals and engagement managers would specialize. And so we've just pushed that down a layer so that we have – 
you know, I, I'd say today our ratio of industry expertise to generic consulting expertise is just a little different than it was even five years ago. Is this an area where Cicero potentially differentiates itself from other firms? Uh, and in general, just how does Cicero differentiate itself from other firms operating in the social impact industry? Yeah, I, I think our main differentiation in the social impact industry is our, um, is our focus on impact and our track record of impact. So we, uh, let's take K-12 education as an example. Um, we are so focused on student outcomes and as measured by proficiency and mastery exams as administered by local states, uh, we can show the direct impact of our work on student achievement. So uh, McKinsey talks about a 10X number and I, I've always admired their 10X number. They basically try to make 10X the financial impact as their fees at a minimum. So when they evaluate a project, they say, okay, there's gonna be a $1.5 million project. We have to have line of sight for how this is gonna make a $15 million you know, bottom line impact for our, for our client. Uh, it's a great exercise and really a, it makes selling consulting pretty easy if you can, if you can convince you know, your clients that they're gonna get a 10X return on, on their investment in you. Well, you can see the social sector is quite hard. Uh, you know, how do you how do you have that same kind of you know conversation? So, in K twelve education, we've been able to track our progress, and we can say for you know this five hundred thousand dollar project, you have a, a student body, you know, you have a, a twenty five thousand uh, students, and we can increase your proficiency rates by you know let's say fifteen percent um, over the next two years. It's not quite as financially, you know, quick and easy to measure and to, to describe, but, you know, the school district might um, might be able to, you know, say, well, for that $500,000, we'd be able to hire two more assistant superintendents or a principal and assistant superintendent. Could we expect 15% proficiency growth across our entire student body, you know, by adding that FTE? So, you know, we're getting closer and closer to to being able to just show directly what impact we can have for what price. And uh, I think that really sets us apart. Uh, you know, it's our track record and just our fastidiousness around measuring impact. It seems like there is a lot of differentiation with Cicero, but what are some examples that, that uh, in which Cicero has failed in, in certain education and social impact projects? And what are some lessons that Cicero has learned from that? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got wounds that we're still licking. So, um, <laughs> So yeah, that's a uh, it's a it's a fair point. Um, I think I think probably uh, our biggest failure was early on. Um, we we were under the assumption that if we provided great content and great training in this sector, that we could very affordably make impact. So from about, as an example, from about 2007 to 2011, to about four years of my life, I was on an airplane teaching a Harvard-created model called DataWise, which I had helped create while in grad school, to social impact leaders all over, all over the U.S. And it was a nice little business. Um, I got really great pats on the back um, really awesome end of session evaluations. Um, I wrote another book during that time that got really great accolades. Um, it was a, 
a high point of my career in terms of like feeling good about what I was doing and the recognition I was getting and the business was, was growing. About that time, um, you know, we, we, we wanted to go back. We weren't as fastidious then at measuring impact with every single client. So we had to do a rear view mirror analysis. And I asked my team to, to go back and check the publicly available information about all of our clients over the last four years and to draw the hockey stick chart for me that showed either steady or declining proficiency rates prior to our arrival and then this, you know, dramatic increase in proficiency rates after our very impressive uh, training. And uh, the irony here is that the, our clients would tell us that, that what we were doing was making an impact. So we kind of just assumed what they meant was we were seeing improvements in student learning. But what my team unfortunately brought back to me was a straight line, not a hockey stick. And so we had to do some serious reflection uh, about the fact that we at the time had a good business but a bad product. Um, we were, um, there was a lot of activity going on, but not a lot of actual impact. And again, it's the same problem we mentioned at the beginning. If you don't have real clear measurements and agreed upon, you know, uh, focus on those measurements, um, it can be problematic. So it was problematic for us as well. So we had to, you know, switch our thinking and fix our product and then build a business around our new product, which is now much more focused on um, changing culture and changing behavior at these organizations um, instead of just um, offering training. So they're, they're bigger projects and they're much, you know, much more intensive coaching than sage on the stage kind of training. On, on the topic of culture, what sort of culture does Cicero itself adopt in order to combat failures like these to drive solutions effectively? Yeah, I think culture's probably our biggest differentiator in terms of recruiting, whereas um, it's a, it, you know the, the culture demonstrates itself in our product offering, but it it's a lagging indicator for our uh, for our clients, whereas it's just so in front of us every day for our for our team members and our employees. Uh, just as an example, you know we're a, a, a smaller consulting firm that will be hiring you know maybe 20 people this year. 20 full-time consultants, and we had over 2,000 applications. So for you listeners out there, now you know what a rock star Rohan is, that he's, uh, he's actually joining us next summer uh, full-time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, our recruiting is, um, it's amazing uh, how easy it is for us to find awesome, you know, amazing new talent, and you just don't hear that from other firms. And so I think our culture is a differentiator. And I'd say it's centered around what we call the Cicero Way, which Rohan, you got, you became familiar with last year. But I think it can be boiled down and summarized by saying, um, as people, what we all want is we want to be the best we can be. And to do that, we need uh, constant coaching. We need transparency. We need vulnerability. Um, we need feedback. And that's hard for adults to do. It's hard for adults in America to do. It just is. Um, even those who are the best and brightest, uh, you build bad habits early in your career, and you um, you know you hide and you uh, you you try to you know um, brush over the things you're weak at. And at Cicero, we try to have them be part of the constant conversation. 
Um, and I know I'm, a, I'm the CEO and I have senior partners here and I know exactly the areas they want me to improve in and I know the areas where I'm progressing well and the areas where I'm kind of lagging. And it's part of regular and consistent dialogue. We model it from the top and, um, and I'd, say, I'd say, you know, that's, that's probably a good description of our culture and why it was that we're able to fail and then, uh, and then fix ourselves along the way. So, Trent, that's a good segue to uh, uh, some questions about your own personal leadership journey. Uh, before you became the CEO of uh, Cicero, I wonder if you could uh, give our audience a sense of, uh, you know, wh what was your career path like before that? Great, uh, great question. It's a, it's a fun one and a different one. I. Uh, I actually became a teacher right out of undergrad. So this idea of management consulting in the social sector, um, and the reason why Cicero is so focused on it, starts with the fact that I, I was a teacher. So I was just a, a regular high school teacher in Northern California right out of my career, and got pretty passionate about um, using the data that was available to me to make improvements in my classroom, and was able to um, uh, make some pretty cool uh, accomplishments. So, for example, in, in the, at the time, the end-of-year assessment in each subject in California was called the Golden State Exam. And roughly 20% of students would achieve um, uh, high, high, I think the category is called highly proficient on the exam at my school. And after my second year, I was getting 80% receiving highly proficient. And it was just basic data-driven strategy. I was taking the outcome measure, and I was breaking it down, and I was creating predictive measures, and I was um, you know, trying to strategically plan how I would allocate time throughout the year. It was, it was not rocket science. And because of those early results, I was quickly promoted to be a principal, uh, well, an assistant dean, an assistant principal, a principal, and, uh, and in the meantime was doing a graduate program at UC Berkeley. I fell in love with statistics decided to pursue research-based doctoral programs, um, left uh, school administration, went back and, and pursued the research doctorate at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, um, and, uh, and there learned that there is a way to have impact from the outside. And so I started a small consult, well, obviously it was small, I just started at a, a consulting firm right out of grad school, uh, focused on this data-wise work as I described, uh, and uh, and then not long after that, I actually sold my growing consulting firm to Cicero, and Cicero. Um, so this firm became Cicero's K-12 practice. It's called Ed Direction. And then over the next 10 years, I just kind of worked my way up at Cicero and um, uh, stayed focused on education and social impact, but tried to influence the whole organization as much as I could. And then was named CEO on January 1, 2017. It sounds like quite a journey. So congratulations for you know uh, <clears throat> how 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 uh, how far you've come. Uh, if you think back on your on your journey, uh, what would you say is the biggest leadership challenge that you faced, and how did you deal with it, and what did you learn from it? Um, I think I, I think in terms of leadership challenge. Um, I honestly think the biggest issue we face um, as leaders is helping the people we work with see the potential that they have. 
Um, it's helping our organizations think bigger and see bigger. Um, one of the things I'm, I just feel so blessed that I got to be a teacher is that you get to work with humans before their minds and brains and bodies are fully developed. And they're not your own kids. Um, you can't learn some of these things as a parent because you're just too emotionally invested in, um, in your own kids. I've experienced that myself now. Um, but as a teacher, you, you just see, you know, in every semester you get a new set. Every year you get a new set. And they come from all walks of life. And you just see a moldability and a, and a passion and an interest for being great in every one of them. And then you fast forward a few years, and we somehow develop this mindset that we, um, we can't keep growing in the same way we did when we were young. And we can't, we, you know, we're, we're kind of fixed. We're, we are who we are. <laughs> and I just, I just don't believe that. I've seen in my own development, and I, I see in others who, who, you know, have a, more of a growth mindset. And you know, so, so this passion I have for kids and for, for their development and for, um, you know, making, really becoming the amazing people they want to become, translates really easily into adults. And I, um, it's just sometimes hard to convince them. Um, you know, convince convince each person that they have that potential, that they can do great things, that they, you know, can be better, and and to set their sights, you know, to set set their sights higher. I saw a funny quote the other day. You know, we believed the world was flat for thousands of years, and somehow we can't believe in ourselves for five minutes. Um, <laughs> that rings true to me. And uh, so, leadership challenge I have is how do I inspire people? to see in themselves what I see in them and, and therefore make the growth and the leaps and growth that they're able to, to, to make. And what do you hope Cicero and other management consulting firms can do better to improve the education and social impact industries? I, I think data is the key. I think, you know, quickly identifying the outcomes that matter, focusing on those outcomes, admitting when maybe you're not making you know the difference you think you're making and this is huge because a lot of not-for-profits are scared to look at the outcomes because they're worried that maybe they maybe they aren't making the difference but we've got to you know we've got to choose our outcomes we've got to focus on them we've got to humbly admit when when we're not making the difference and i think consulting firms can play a real role in providing a third-party you know rigorous lens to that to, to that endeavor so, Trent, it's uh, been a great conversation. I really want to thank you very much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. It's been it's been really fun. Appreciate the uh, the emphasis on on this topic, and appreciate being a part of it. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.